That is the sound of hundreds of angry fascists, and they're gathered on the 7th of January, just like they do every year. You'll find them outside of the old Movimento Sociale Italiano section at Tuscolana, on Via Ivandro. Hundreds of them, wearing black shirts in the gloomiest settings. There, on a small strip of road that connects Via Numitore to Via Tuscolana, the windows are all either shuttered or covered by metal bars. The walls of the buildings on Via Evandro are covered with rows of black posters emblazoned with a yellow Celtic cross, and the words are scrawled in black spray paint, Acalarencia, or the abbreviation AL, with a Celtic cross in the middle. The group of skinheads, identitarians, and other fascists, these days numbering in the hundreds if not the thousands, year after year, will march to other ceremonial sites as the night wears on. Someone will yell the name of a fascist killed in the years of lead, and the crowd will respond, Presente. Ultimately, they'll convene at this site on the stairs, where a 13-year-old boy attempted but failed to escape a hit squad never brought to account. It's a significant and chilling event that takes place, in defiance of the Italian constitution's explicit anti-fascism, one that keeps alive the memory of vendetta and that reasserts the generational commitment to violent and the fascist cult of death. But what happened at Acalarencia on January 7, 1978, was not merely a random act of spontaneous violence. It was a culmination of hostilities that had been building for three years, and the old struggle remains, with punk anthems from anti-fascists calling for one, one hundred, one thousand Acalarencias. This is a story of the massacre of Acalarencia and the killing machine that it produced. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and this is the Years of Lead Pod. In the previous episode, I talked about the killing of Walter Rossi, likely by the young son of a reactionary judge, Alessandro Alibrandi, but plausibly by his companion, Cristiano Fioravanti. Rossi's murder, which took place on September the 30th, was only the latest in a string of killings that hit the left in 1977. And the same gun that killed Rossi had also killed left-wing student Guido Bellacchioma earlier in the year. It would seem that Ali Brandi and his friend Cristiano Fiorovanti had already begun their career of murder. Cristiano and his twin sister Cristina were early initiates into the fascist movement. Born In 1960, Cristiano Fioravanti's first foray into the local Monteverde section of the MSC had come at the age of 13. According to his brother Valerio, Cristiano would tear down left-wing posters by the time he was 12 years old. This certainly brought him attention. As he'd get into fights, he starts hanging out with a rough crowd, coming home late, and getting deeper into politics. In order to protect his little brother, Valerio Fioravanti started getting involved too. And soon they're both deeply enmeshed within the fascist networks of Rome during the mid-1970s. It's hard to say what got Cristiano so intensely and fiercely involved at such a young age. The Fioravanti's father, 
had been an announcer for the public broadcasting network and was involved in cabaret theater. Valerio was raised in part by his grandparents, and his parents pushed him to be a child actor after the birth of his little brother and sister. So Valerio got a few decent roles. He's a cute kid with blue eyes, brown hair, and freckles. And as a teen, he gets parts in spaghetti westerns. And later, a romantic comedy in which he plays the lead male role, who's sort of seduced by a beautiful older woman. Valerio said of his cinematic career that he, quote, immediately learned to recognize the good and the bad. It was precisely in order not to meet different villains every day that I left the cinema. So Valerio enters the Kennedy High School first, followed a couple years later by Cristiano, who organized a nucleus of fascist youth at the Kennedy High School later. During this period, he and Alibrandi meet, and they were present at the Battle of San Giovanni di Dio in December of 1974, during which the far right battled the Autonomisti in Monteverde. By this point, Valerio's parents are really worried about him getting into violence, so they send him to live out in Portland, Oregon for a while. The next year, he returned for his last movie part, but he got up to his old tricks and his parents send him back to the United States. Finally returning to Rome for good in 1975, his parents send him to Istituto Tozzi of Monteverde instead of Kennedy High School, but at Tozzi he gets acquainted with other militants around Monteverde, including a guy named Franco Anselmi. Initially born and raised in Bologna, Franco had been attached to right-wing politics before moving to Rome in the early 1970s, but there's something sort of wrong with this guy. In 1972, at the age of just 16, he was beaten really badly by left-wing classmates, and he fell into a three-month coma. Though he recovered, he remained blind in one eye, earning him the nickname the Blind Man of Urbino. When he meets Valerio in 1975, Franco Anselmi had the kind of thousand-yard stare that comes with the obligatory street wars of the 1970s. He was present on the day that Mikas Montakas was murdered in front of the Prati District's MSE section in Piazza Risorgimento. Indeed, Mikas' blood had stained Franco's balaclava, and he kept it almost as a religious relic. For Valerio Fioravanti, Franco was special, not in a kind of warrior mystic way, but precisely the opposite, in the sense of being human and sympathetic. Quote, I bound myself to Franco in a very special way because he was a boy I really liked. In romantic terms, he was definitely one of the best, one of the most generous guys. There was nothing spiritual or intellectual. He was simply a boy with a golden heart. The classic person who, despite having already had very serious consequences for his political commitment, had not flown back into the private sector. He was not afraid. This is what strikes you. At Tozzi, Valerio and Franco also met another kid named Massimo Carminati, who was the last to round out their trio. Born in Milan, his family moved to Rome when he was young, and he involved himself in the political situation of the Roman far-right in a less cavalier way than his comrades, but nevertheless actively. Raised in the Marconi neighborhood, Carminati lived close to the Ur, which is also in the ninth administrative subdivision of Rome. So he'd go and hang out at the Fungo Bar with the co-founder of Lotta Studentesca, Giuseppe Dimitri, and others in the fascist movement who gravitated around the old mystique of Avanguardia Nazionale. 
Valerio, on the other hand, would hang out at a nearby villa where he would meet up with a girl named Francesca Mambro. Francesca later said, quote, Unfortunately, I come from an environment, the right wing, rather male-dominated, where women don't have much space. When they do, it's because they really conquered it tooth and nail. When I met Valerio, he was one of these few people who gave me maximum trust and maximum availability, something that didn't happen in the rest of the environment. Francesca would fastidiously adhere to the youth climate around the headquarters of the Federazione Universitario Azione Nazionale, or FUON, the MSE's university student group, on Via Siena in the neighborhood of Nomentana. Born in 1959, she was only 18 in the fateful year of 1977, and her father, a former police officer, was already sick with the cancer that would kill him two years later. Already a militant in her early teens, she joined the Fronte della Gioventù, or the Youth Front, the MSE's youth group, at the age of 14. Involved just as much as the males in the fighting of that period, her home's courtyard was targeted with bombs three times. But she was also a child of the youth generation, quite different from the other fascists. Giampiero Mugini writes, quote, of medium height, Francesca has nothing of the right-wing type of girls, or of the right-wing as we more frequently imagine, all order and traditions. As a little girl, when she wore braids and white socks, she was crazy about the twist, and she danced it alone out of shyness. At school, she gets along very well with her feminist peers, even if they militate in the autonomy operaia. She's an ardent girl, who draws from everywhere moods and ideas as long as they go against the system and exalt her bitter but determined rebellion. Of wood and coal to put in the furnace, of anger and protest, there's plenty in the 70s, and Francesca offers it up in spades. Anything goes for this rebellion, even the hardest and sharpest American rock, even the Black Panthers, even Jan Palach, who sets himself on fire for the freedom and dignity of the Czechoslovakian people who humiliated the Soviet tanks. Francesca adores nonconformism, and for her, at school, the maximum of nonconformism becomes anti-fascism. For a woman who wants to be in the front row of politics and confrontation, she's an unusual character in the right. Those were the years in which, if women appeared on the political stage, they were invariably left-wing women, those on the right. So the women of the time tell them were crackers who knew nothing of any topic in the current political debate. Until the early 70s, the MSE was keen to present its women solely as beautiful, well-dressed, and composed girls to contrast with the sloppy left-wing women with those who went around decked out in parkas and sneakers. So these kind of nonconformist fascists make up the core of a group of violent kids close to the Roman fascist party, the Movimento Sociale Italiano, that had really grown increasingly militant during the 1970s. And as a network, they really knitted together clusters from the Monteverde section of the MSE, the Fungo Bar violent paramilitary inheritance in the Ur, and the Fuon of Via Siena. And by the end of 1977, the Roman fascists were locked in a tit-for-tat conflict with the left, which had extended from their high schools into the neighborhoods and was about to explode into full-on terror. 
So I've already talked about the killing of Walter Rossi during a demonstration by extra-parliamentary left-wing groups outside of the MSE section in Balduina. Since the scuffle during which this shooting occurred was a block away from the actual protest, the attack was not defensive. Instead, according to Cristiano Fioravanti's big brother Valerio, quote, Sure, they fired, but I would like to remind you that a few months earlier, the leftists had shot Enrico Tiano, then secretary of the Balduina section, in the head who survived by a miracle. They had returned that day to finish work. The climate towards us was one of total hatred, without limits. Just look at what happened at Walter Rossi's funeral and the days immediately following. At Rossi's funeral, 10,000 people flooded the streets, raising chants promising death to the fascists. Killing fascists is not a crime. The following day, an anonymous group hit the Blue Angel Bar in Turin, known as a fascist hangout. In the blaze that ensued, a non-political kid named Roberto Crescenzio was badly burned and died in the hospital days later. At the end of the year, the violence returned with the targeting of a left-wing high school student named Massimo Di Pila, shot while walking home through the Olympic Village on December 23rd, probably by a fellow student at his heavily right-wing school, Azzorita, in Rome's affluent Parioli district. The blame for the action against Di Pila immediately landed with the fascist activist Alessandro Pucci from the Flaminio district. Pucci had been a target for some time, very active in MSE circles. His father, Mario Pucci, was the editor of Secola d'Italia, the MSE's paper. And just a couple of weeks earlier, leftists had singled out Alessandro Pucci during a fight, effectively saying, you're next. Mario Pucci was also hated by the left, and his son was no different. At one point in 1972, on national television, the kind of heavy-set Mario Pucci with gray hair slicked back over his head and thick black-framed glasses accused the ascendant Communist Party leader Enrico Berlinguer of dodging his questions. Berlinguer responded emotionally, it would be better if the leaders of the Movimento Sociale, who are the same ones who had serious responsibility for the crimes of fascism, did not speak of running away, because you were only brave when you were behind the protection of the SS. You were so brave in the massacre of young people, in the massacre of partisans. When you faced each other, you Republican fascists, the partisans always fled. Here's the actual recording of that incredible moment. Quando si tratta di arrivare a discutere con voi non trovate altro sistema che la fuga. Lei non ha risposto alla mia domanda. Io le ho chiesto se perderete voti. Sarebbe meglio che i dirigenti del movimento sociale, che sono rispetto gli stessi che hanno avuto responsabilità gravi nei delitti del fascismo, non parlassero di fughe. Perché loro... Voi siete scappati con la Scusami, non è un dibattito. Mi spiace, non puoi più parlare. Perché voi siete stati coraggiosi soltanto quando stavate dietro la protezione delle SS. Allora siete stati coraggiosi nel massacro dei giovani, nel massacro dei partigiani. Quando vi siete trovati da, di fronte, voi fascisti repubblicani, i partigiani siete sempre scappati. Even if you don't understand those words, you can feel the emotional confrontation as Berlinguer intones the words in a sonorous tone. Voi, which means you, as in voi fascisti repubblicani, i partigiani, siete sempre scappati, which means you fascist republicans, the partisans, always ran. <laughs> 
And while he says these words, which come out like a chant in a march, he opens and closes his hand near his chest, violently, as if he was defending himself from a real physical assault. Sufficient to say that this was just Berlingue, who was not timid around fascists, but was certainly no friend to the armed struggle. And it was the early 70s, five years before the end of 1977, as the social fiber of the country came unglued. According to the fascists, the left were preparing a counterattack and were broadcasting their intentions over the left-wing radio station Radio Cita Futura, with the program editor Roberto Junta Laspara supposedly stating on air, we must hit all the fascists and at Flaminio the one to hit is Alessandro Pucci. To defend Alessandro Pucci, the Messini band gather in defense of the Flaminio section of the MSE on Saturday afternoon, Christmas Eve. Militants arrive from Parioli, from Balduina, and Vigna Clara, all part of the Northern Rome network. Pucci starts to feel a little strange, though, and decides to go back to his house to make sure everything's okay. At 5.30 p.m., his friend Fabio Anoshia drives Alessandro Pucci to his place to find his mother lying in a pool of blood, with his brother trying to stop the bleeding by tying his shoelaces around her arm like a tourniquet. The Puccis had been setting up their decorations for Christmas Eve, while a group of armed leftists stormed the guardhouse, tying up the guy on duty. The doorbell rang and Mrs. Pucci answered the door. On the other side were three armed men. As she slammed the door immediately, the gunman squeezed off a few rounds. Before the door hit the gun, forcing the aim up at the ceiling, a bullet grazed Mario in the back and hit Mrs. Pucci in the arm. The response barely passes Christmas Day. Alessandro Pucci calls his friends Alessandro Alibrandi, Cristiano Fioravanti, and some others. They develop a plot together, and at 1.30 a.m. it goes off. Roberto Junta Laspara, the editor of Radio Cita Futura, a left-wing radio station in Rome that does a mix of countercultural, topical commentary and music, is leaving the office after midnight on Monday morning. He's walking through Piazza Vittorio Emanuele when he notices a Vespone with two people on board. Behind it is an Auto Bianchi A112, a sort of a mini with two people in it, precisely description of the attack against Di Pila. Well, what else is going to happen? The Vespone drives up on the cobblestones and without stopping, the passenger pops off two shots into La Spada, hitting him in the left arm and in the hip, with a 32 caliber pistol, a Beretta 7.65mm to be specific, the same gun used against Depila. After the action, a call comes into the Paese Sera. The voice of a young man, who says, quote, The red worms shot two innocent parents at home. We immediately executed one of those responsible in Piazza Vittorio. Those who prevent comrades from leaving their homes will suffer our reaction. National Revolutionary Justice. Here was the first action of the group that would become the Nuclei Armati Revoluzionari, or the armed revolutionary cells, the NAR. The following night, late on Tuesday evening, vengeance belongs to the left. They plant a bomb at the MSE section in Parioli, which explodes without really harming anyone, but causes significant structural damage. The group that claims the action is called the New Partisans, and they're just getting started. On Wednesday, the day following the bomb, the same group appears, as if from the ether, at 6.15 a.m. 
The fascist militant Angelo Pistolesi was at home in his apartment getting ready for work. Pistolesi is one of those Messini who was slightly older and felt like he had a future in the fascist party. He was the right-hand man of Sandro Sacucci, the MSC politician who had to flee the country when a shot from his entourage killed a left-wing demonstrator after a speaking event in the left-wing stronghold Sette Romano. Sacucci himself had been a member of the Ordine Nuovo before rejoining the MSC in 1971, and he was seen unloading an entire clip at the backs of retreating leftists during the Battle of San Giovanni di Dio. The Sacucci boys, as they were called, had been the violent youth, born after the war and in some cases after 1956. These were the angry young men that the party hoped to cultivate, even as Sacucci fled to Argentina, convicted of moral complicity in a murder, never to return to Italy. That said, Pistolesi was just 30 when he left his apartment to go to work at NL. He had a wife and two kids, and there were rumors that he snitched on the others who had been responsible for the death at Sette Romana. As he approached the red Volkswagen Beetle that morning, an armed man jumped out from behind a payphone booth, shooting him three times in the back. The shooter threw his gloves into the courtyard and escaped on foot into morning traffic. The wave of violence was enough for a terse article by the Associated Press. It read, quote, a rightist politician was assassinated in broad daylight in Rome yesterday in a wave of political violence that's bringing demands for a strong government to combat it. The head of the political office of the police, Domenico Spinella, and the magistrate Vittorio Laquaniti claimed, quote, the crime would have been linked to his relations with the underworld, or it was a feud between fascists. It was true that Pitolesi had been caught writing bad checks and that acrimony within the party had emerged amid the feud between the Sucucci boys' violent activities and the conservatives' efforts to build a credible right-wing coalition. Il Messaggero ran with the political police's statement, disclosing, quote, At present, no hypothesis can be ruled out, not even that of a feud between right-wing ultras. Angelo Pistolesi, once arrested after the Sette raid, sang, revealing the backgrounds of the bloody fascist raid, and now someone may have taken their revenge. Or he thought it well to shut his mouth definitively, since he was one that knew too much. Part of what seemed confusing about the murder of Pistolesi was the fact that three separate groups claimed the action. The Brigate Rosse, the Nuclei Armati Proletari, and the Nuovi Partigiani all wrote letters claiming the action. Indeed, it's unclear whether or not the left truly was behind the action since no further evidence was discovered. However, fascist militants reading the news became incensed that the police were pointing the finger at them. The black shirts accused the papers of being run by demo-communist elites, the new establishment of Christian Democrat collaborators brooking a historic compromise with the children of Stalin. Cristiano and Valerio Fioravanti met at the villa near the Fungo Bar with Franco Anselmi, Alessandro Alibrandi, and their friend Francesco Bianco to plan their next move. If you recall, by the way, Bianco was the kid in the previous episode on the so-called Autonomia Nera who ended up trying to shoot a group of leftists blocks away from the courthouse. So, the funeral took place on December 30th, 
We're now three months and five shootings after the murder of Walter Rossi, all in Rome. And at 6 p.m., a squad of 20 or so militants break away from the retinue on Piazza Barberini, coursing down Via del Tritone on the way to the headquarters of Il Messaggero. Chanting slogans and throwing projectiles, they end up at the stately six-story building, which lies just blocks away from the Quirinale, chucking Molotovs at the windows and entrance. A fire begins and police show up, chasing the militants down the road. The squadristi overturn a couple of cars and sprint through the mingling crowd of tourists and onlookers. After their successful escape, the squad spend New Year's Eve carousing back at the villa, where they enjoyed a magnificent view and found a shotgun that they took turns firing off the terrace. After the hangover wore off, they hit the Corriere della Sera on January 4th. Armed with pistols, they broke into the offices and assaulted the custodian and an employee. They threw Molotovs and one of them smashed in the face of the custodian, Olindo del Uva. Valerio immediately used his clothes to try to put out the fire, but del Uva was badly burned. Another fascist involved in the action, Livio Lai from Trieste, had been hit by a Molotov carelessly thrown by Bianco, causing a pretty bad injury to his leg. That night, the phone call came to Messaggero. It was a young woman. Quote, It is necessary to strike those responsible for the persecutions against the national revolutionary forces, the judges and the journalists, she states. Cosiga's teams can persecute us but not stop us. Freedom for comrades, honor to Angelo Pistolesi. Three days later, the real trouble starts. In the morning... Members of Lota Continua see some youth front activists putting up posters for a Milan band called Fili del Vento, which played at the Hobbit camp the previous year. A scuffle breaks out, and that afternoon, the rage boils over. In the workers' district of Tuscolano, where the Messini are always in a precarious situation, the door is automatically locked and nobody leaves alone. At around 6 p.m., a group of five young members are stepping outside, but they leave the door open a bit so they don't have to knock to re-enter. On their right, a commando of ten armed men approaches armed with pistols, and one brandished a scorpion machine gun, the weapon beloved by Valerio Morucci and Adriana Faranda of the Red Brigade's Roman Column. The shock of recognition hits along with the bullets. 20-year-old Franco Bigonzetti is wearing a light-colored raincoat and is the first to be shot. Vincenzo Signeri is hit in the arm, but gets dragged back into the building by Giuseppe Daudino, who flees immediately along with his comrade Maurizio Lupini. 13-year-old Francesco Chiavatta is hit, and he tries to run up the stairs away from the scene to get away. Not far to go, but he's pursued by one of the leftists who shoots him in the back before he can make his getaway. It only lasted a couple of minutes, but two were dead and one was seriously injured in the ambush. Chiavata's distraught father, just a local doorman, committed suicide after the month of misery that followed, ending his life by drinking a full bottle of hydrochloric acid. The attack was claimed by a group calling itself the Nuclei Armati per il Contropotere Territoriale. Quote, An armed nucleus 
After careful counter-information and control at the sewer in Via Acalarencia hit the Black Rats at the exact moment when they were going out to perform yet another Squadristi action. The comrades do not delude themselves. The list is still long. Squadism has been bleeding the streets of Italy, covered by the judiciary and the parties of the six-member agreement, for too long. This connivance guarantees the fascist safety from bourgeois prisons, but not from proletarian justice, which will never give respite. We hit hard, and certainly not surprisingly, black carrions are well-known fighters and trained in the use of weapons. The distinguished listener will note that there are a couple of hints within this communique from the armed cells for territorial counterpower. First of all, the notion of territorial counterpower comes from, perhaps most prominently, the Potere Operaio intellectual area around 1971 to 1973. Second of all, the note of no respite, senza tregua, seems to indicate affinity with that armed milieu. And the scorpion machine gun, later found in a Brigatero Se safe house, would have been another interesting connection. But more on that in a second. We're back on the scene, where the bodies have been cleared away by police and ambulance workers, but the blood of a dead 13-year-old fascist is still fresh on the doorsteps next to Acalarencia, and word is spreading fast. Francesca Mambro is among the first on the scene. Quote, 77 was behind us, and the clash with the communists now seemed over. Acalarencia was the section my brother attended. That day he didn't go because he had an appointment with the dentist, but I didn't know it. I was worried. As more fascists arrived, they started getting into it with the police, with whom they're still enraged following the murder of Pistolesi. Everyone's showing up, even the national leader of the youth front Gianfranco Fini. What are you doing here? Mambro shouts at the cops. Go find the assassins. Something happens. One rumor is that a journalist haphazardly flicked a cigarette and it landed on Bigonzetti's blood. Others said that a man nobody knew wearing a white raincoat had thrown a projectile at the cops. Either way, tear gas starts raining down. Stefano Recchioni, a young activist from the Cole Opio section, who wasn't really into violence, gets hit in the leg with a canister. Mambro describes what she saw next. Quote, One canister strikes Stefano Recchioni in the leg. He's next to me. I see him bend down to see what had happened. As soon as he gets up, he gets hit and falls to the ground. I think it's a canister and I try to help him. But when I put my hand under his head to lift it and I see the blood, I understand that it's a bullet. An anonymous militant told Nicola Rao, quote, Francesca was among the most angry about what had happened. I remember her furious. She yelled at people watching from the balconies and windows that they were cowards, all accomplices in the hunt for fascists, which by then we considered to have reached a point of no return. She was among those who decided to react, even with weapons. It had been a carabinieri captain who had fired the bullet that killed Stefano Recchioni. After one attempt, Captain Zivori's gun had jammed, so he got a different one from a nearby trooper, and with this gun, he took aim at eye level and fired at the angry group, hitting Recchioni, who immediately hits the ground. Carted off to the hospital, Recchioni will die two days later. Alessandro Pucci said, quote, I knew Stefano Recchioni well, who had been my classmate, not in class but in school at the Nazarene. 
When he was hit by the Carabinieri, he was at Francesca's side and I was close by. The next day, we began to organize our response. The pitched battle would take place in the following days, all with the arsenal of our group. I'm not saying that we were the only ones who fired, but certainly 70% of the volume of fire in that famous shootout was provided by us. Feeney is also hit with a tear gas canister in the suppression event. But it's the shooting of Stefano Recchioni that signals the beginning of a new crack in Italian life. Francesco Bianco, who had fallen in with the Fioravanti group, explains, quote, We got there when Recchioni had just been hit, and for three days we never left. The first evening there were very hard clashes with the Carabinieri. I remember the following day in the newspapers the photo of an armed personnel carrier that must have received at least 20 pistol shots. The comrades climbed the steps of Via Acalarentia, made their way, and then boom, boom, they shot at it. The armored car fired the tear gas canister and we were off. After about 10 minutes, another armored car passed and the sequence was repeated. That evening, many people arrived armed. There were a lot of crazy people. In short, like that, at the time, not just us from Monteverde and your. After days of fighting, police broke through the alley next to the section and the fascists scattered into nearby buildings, dropping their guns in flower pots along the way and handing them off to women in the movement. Police barricaded them in and were able to arrest a number of them. Later reconstructions tracked the Scorpion machine gun's origins to the singer Johnny Fontana, who sold it to a cop in Toscolano in 1977. From there, Nobody knows how it got into the hands of the armed cells for territorial counterpower. For his part, the cop denied buying the weapon, and the inquiry simply noted that it likely ended up in the hands of the Brigate Rosse after the militant who owned it joined later. It's generally believed that the group was organized by Maurizio Lombino, who had been a part of the Avanguardia Operaia before moving into the armed milieu and then becoming a pentito. Lombino was sort of part of a broader armed milieu out of Bergamo, where Senza Tregua was very prominent. But he also had his own ideas. Later explaining his thoughts to the police during an interrogation a year later, he talked about how the armed party would be a vanguard distinct from, but partially within the area of autonomia, meant to open some sort of rupture within the state. Quote, The territorial armed nuclei were not a fixed organization, they collected instances of social struggle generically understood, he explained. That is, there were no centralized and compartmentalized apparatus. The phenomenon of spontaneity was in force and among the topics dealt with collectively. Some could autonomously decide to carry out actions, which they then claimed under the initials of the nuclei. Lombino was, indeed, associated with a lot of the groups associated with the former Potero Barrio figures who radiated out from Santa Tregua when that milieu started to undergo significant tensions in 1976. He'd circulated around the Nuclei Combatenti per il Comunismo, which came out of the Formazioni Comunisti Armate, a group that Valerio Morucci and Adriana Ferranda had created after leaving Santa Tregua. More interestingly, Lombino was also associated with the Comitati Comunisti Revoluzionari, or the Cocori, which was more associated with Oreste Scalzone.
Indeed, the armed cells for territorial counterpower are considered to refer to Kokori directly by Pino Casamassima in his book I Soversivi. But amid the firefights around Acalerencia in January 1978, it didn't seem to matter who had pulled the trigger. Every institution of the state seemed equally culpable in the minds of the fascist youth. Mamaro later commented, quote, We kids were used for security at Almirante's rallies when people were needed who were ready to take blows and give them back. But in Acalerencia, the bigwigs of the party showed that if we had to take uncomfortable positions to defend ourselves, how to report to the police, then it was not worth it. Acalerencia marked the definitive break for many of us with the MSE. The MSE's leadership attempted to placate them, but they were beyond the point of no return. Maurizio Gaspari, secretary of the Youth Front in Rome under Fini's leadership, states, quote, I remember Almirante who came alone with his Fiat 126 without an escort. To give the physical sensation of someone saying, I expose myself to risks as much as you do. I remember the total chaos our militants reacting violently, the riots, the tear gas. How could this whole spiral be stopped? I don't think there were any solutions. Also, because if some of us dared to say to the most troublesome, what are you doing? They ran the serious risk of having a gun pointed at them by their own militants. The reality is that it was an unmanageable situation. They were difficult and dramatic years in which we sacrificed everything. Friends, loved ones loves. We were closed 24 hours a day in a section, making flyers, posters, discussing. Who amongst us, being a party leader, had more responsibilities, was, moreover, in the very uncomfortable role of having to mediate on the one hand and suffer the exasperation of the most angry militants on the other. The intellectual and countercultural leaders of the left were also struck by the senselessness of the murder. Though he was sort of the intellectual mastermind of the Cocori, to which the culprits allegedly referred, Oreste Scalzone personally declared, quote, This is not anti-fascism. Shooting blindly without a plan is to be condemned. Radio Popolare, one of the free radio stations of Autonomia, called for some kind of truce after listeners called in and disputed the massacre with them. But it was too late for a truce. Already, leftists had descended on the lower Parioli section of the MSE, causing massive destruction. Then, the day after the shooting subsided, Almirante led a party procession to call for the end of leftist violence, stopping near the site of the massacre. However, Bianco and his group broke away from the march at this point and went to the workers' district of Alberone, where they caused all manner of violence. In high schools like Atarita, the impacts of Acalarencia were immediately felt. According to one member of Lota Studentesca, quote, The day before yesterday, three MSEs were killed, so today there was a bit of a mess. At school, we did the first two hours, and after recess we had an internal authorized procession and assembly shouting slogans. After the assembly, we made the procession together with the MSE to Piazza Ungheria and went up to the section Lower Paroli. It's in really bad shape. All the doors are blown out, 
and there's a large hole in the wall opposite the front door. Afterwards, we all went to Mamali, the classical high school in Parioli, to beat up our classmates, but they didn't come out. Today, I went to basketball and then to Buco with Enzo Piso, Roberto Trentin, and Marcello De Angelis, and another from Tuscolano who knew very well those three comrades killed. Lotta Studentesca decided to occupy Azzorita the following day, but when the guys didn't show up at 7 a.m., the girls called off the action. A different operation was called for anyway. The leaders of the group convened a meeting at the Cineteatro Mercali. Roberto Fiore, Pepe Dimitri, and Gabriele Adinolfi all spoke on the need to build a national network and not just a group of Roman students. This would be the founding conference of Teresa Posizione, the third position. Ideologically, it seemed rather identical to Lotta Studentesca, so much so that the militants in the group didn't really notice the change and some continued to refer to it as LS. But the big difference was the final break with the MSE. These militants were no longer Messini who organized in schools with their own current. They were, instead, a group that could even treat the MSE with open hostility. On February 25th, in fact, a Messini guy who liked to hang out in front of the Azzarita was picked on at a party organized by a girl with Teresa Posizione. The argument turned into a fight and then a brawl. Third position was not the youth front. Efforts to establish an alternative and autonomous entity from the MSE had reached fruition as a direct result of the Acalerencia massacre. This meant that Teresa Posizione members weren't even allowed to go to the normal hangouts like Cafe Parnaso in Piazzale delle Muse. As for the Fiorovanti brothers and their comrades, something deep down was beginning to turn. Just a few days after the big brawl between TP and the Youth Front, a message was convened by Cristiano and Valerio Fioravanti, along with Franco Anselmi, Alessandro Alibrandi, and some of their comrades. It was the third anniversary of the killing of Mikis Montacas, one of the lugubriously sacred days in the Italian fascist calendar, and they were at the Fungo Bar in the year. Comrades from behind bars had put the word out that the culprits of the Acalerencia were leftists who lived in an occupied building on Via Calpurnio Fiamma in the Cinecitta district. Cinecitta was known to have a pretty serious group of violent autonomisti, but in this case, there were no details asked or received. At around 11 p.m., they decide that they'll finally begin to share this holiday with the left, leaving the Ur for Via Calpurnio Fiamma in three cars, a white Fiat 127, a yellow 130, and Fioravanti's mother's Ford. Three of them stay with the Ford and the 127 at a side street near the gardens of Piazza Don Bosco, while the Fioravanti's get into the yellow 130 with Alibrandi, Anselmi, and Bianco driving, making sure to cover the license plate with newspaper first. According to Bianco, they covered the license plate because the fascist had borrowed the car without his dad's permission, but the newspaper was flapping and wouldn't stay tight. They'd stopped by the occupied building on the way, but it was empty, and they saw some kids hanging out in the Piazza Don Bosco and decided they'd settle for easy targets. Cristiano Fioravanti described what happened, quote, Once in Piazza Don Bosco on the Fiat 130, whose plate has been covered by a newspaper, 
we saw that there were two or three people sitting on a bench or fence of the gardens that were near the road, on the left side going towards Don Bosco, while two or three other people were standing near the same bench or fence. Bianco remained behind the wheel of the car, and also on board it remained Alibrandi as cover. Seeing a few kids hanging out there, Franco Anselmi and the Fioravanti brothers approach and open fire. It seems to me that we immediately opened fire, Fioravanti continued. I'm sure I hit one of the people, I shot one or two shots, and I couldn't shoot others because the gun jammed. Anselmi unloaded all his magazine, but I think he doesn't hit anybody, being a bad shooter. Valerio instead hit one of the boys who fell to the ground. Given this, Valerio moved astride his body, always standing, and shot one or two shots into his head. Then he turned to a boy fleeing, screaming, and shot at him too, but without hitting him. I think I hit one of the people in the chest or abdomen. I can't say if it's the boy killed or the one injured. There was no express mention of what we wanted to do before, but when we returned to our cars, none of the three people waiting for us were sorry. In fact, Anselmi had hit Roberto Cialaba before Valerio Fioravanti ended his life for good. And Cristiano was correct that he shot Nicola Cialaba, Roberto's brother, twice. With that, Roberto Cialaba was dead at 23 years old and his brother was seriously injured. Roberto had been a lotto continua activist, but not a militant. In fact, he had never seen a real gun in his life. The police and press would blame Shialaba's death on petty drug deals. The call, however, came into the newspapers later that night. Honor to the murdered comrades. We will avenge the murdered comrades in Via Acalarencia. Blood calls for blood. Nuclei armati rivoluzionari. It wasn't the first taste of blood for Cristiano Fioravanti and Alessandro Alibrandi, and it wouldn't be the last. On the adrenaline high from their first collective action, the NAR decided that they needed to rob an armory to collect more weapons. They were struck, though, by a crisis of conscience. Valerio Fioravanti, who came up with the idea, had a particularly acute issue, because private property was supposed to be sacred in his own ideology, whereas even murder against the left could be excused as part of a war. They decided that robbing an armory would be a truly political act. On March 6th, just a week after the murder of Roberto Cialaba, the NAR is going to rob a gun shop. The first trick is stealing a car, which they do the night before, agreeing that Bianco will drive. Bianco picks up Anselmi at his apartment the next day, and the others meet up at the Fungo Bar. From there, the Fioravantis, along with Alibrandi, Anselmi, and Bianco as the driver again, go to Centofani Armory on Via Ramazzini in the Monteverde Nuovo district, absurdly close to the homes of the Fioravantis and Alibrandi. Bianco parks in a gas station next to the armory, Franco Anselmi and Valerio enter the armory and take the Centofani brothers into the bathroom, telling them to stay there while they fill bags with pistols. Just then, a retired Carabinieri marshal who's a friend of the Centofani's comes in, but Ali Brandi, who's covering the entrance, stops him and the guys take him into the bathroom with the Centofani brothers. Valerio is a bagman, carrying 11 pistols in two barrels 
to the car, but as he leaves the armory, he hears gunshots behind him. According to the Centofanis, Danilo Centofani heard that they are leaving and exited the bathroom because the NAR militants had not locked the door. Seeing Danilo out of the bathroom, Franco Anselmi opened fire, but Franco is a terrible shot due to his blindness in one eye. Danilo returns fire, hitting Franco in the back and Alibrandi in the shoulder. At any rate, the Fioravantis get into the car and Bianco takes off. According to Bianco, he was reversing down to the armory to see if he could pick up Anselmi, but Valerio Fioravanti said that Bianco was trying to flee and he held a gun to his head to make him stop. Either way, Franco Anselmi is lying dead at the entrance to the Centofani armory and the Fioravantis jump out of the car, opening fire at the owners. Seeing their dead comrade lying in a pool of blood, they got back into the car and drove away. In the aftermath, police went to Anselmi's apartment and asked his mother if he'd gone out with anyone else. This led them to Bianco, who had picked him up that day, and police arrested him. The Centofanis ID'd Bianco, but then retracted their identification for reasons that are unclear. The Centofanis were then charged with perjury and put in jail in the cell next to Bianco. The NAR put in a call to ANSA News Service with directions to find their communique. It reads, quote, The Revolutionary Board issues the following regarding the death of one of its warriors. Franco Anselmi has concluded in the only possible way a life dedicated to anti-communism militancy. He was distinguished by his loyalty, his courage, his generosity. Nevertheless, we condemn Danilo Centofani to the death penalty for having shot Franco from behind. Domenico Centofani and Rizzo Rosario for not having stopped the cowardly friend. We also condemn to variable penalties, according to our revolutionary judgment, all those who contribute to the defamatory work already begun by bourgeois culture against Franco. And we condemn everyone who will collaborate with the servants of the police at any level, reminding them that however many people they can arrest, the Franco Anselmi armed groups will always remain alive to carry out the executions decided by the revolutionary leadership. Honor to the comrade, Franco Anselmi. We're ready to follow you. Tremble, cowards, the corrupt, the spies. Some months later, Alibrandi is stopped by a patrol. He freaks out and aims his 38 at them, and they immobilize him. When investigators trace the serial number, they track it to the Centofani armory. Incredibly, Alibrandi is only given a five-month sentence. Meanwhile, Cristiano gets very paranoid, saying he'll flee to Switzerland, but Valerio talks him down. They call their parents and meet up in a public place confessing everything. Of course... Their parents don't turn them in, and this helps them steady their nerves. Soon enough, Anselmi's memory becomes part of their mythos. If I were to die in battle, that would be my greatest celebration. No crying and no priests, songs and dances, Valerio later says. After the March robbery, they have guns, they have friends, and then some leftists plant a bomb in the Fungo bar, so they need a new hangout. They choose Via Siena. At this point, Biagio Cacciola, who has been the leader of Fuan at Via Siena, 
is sort of brushed aside for Guido Zappavigna, who becomes the de facto representative of the armed fascists who practically lodge themselves at the penny bar next door. In the spring of 1978, Cacciola says, a particular situation began to arise. Many kids came to Via Siena from all areas of Rome, also because the sections of their neighborhoods had either been closed or placed under police stations. Most of them are stationed at the Penny Bar, while we continue to engage in political activity in the headquarters in Via Siena. It's true, many began to do illegal things, but they didn't come to tell us about it. Also because we had always been very clear about violence. In Dicenso, the magazine of the Youth Front, we derided terrorism as a, quote, useless path with no return. Of course, we theorized a heretical and revolutionary discourse outside the system, indeed against the system, but with political, nonviolent means. Then I can also understand that an 18-year-old kid with a very low degree of culture and political awareness could have translated all of these things into the theory of armed struggle. But it wasn't like that. On the contrary, I remember once we organized a conference at the Teatro de Servi in which I spoke harshly against those kids who were already beginning to commit acts of violence. Because our discourse could not and should not be interfered with by those who snatched chains or stole cars. But, by now, the situation was completely out of control of the party. At a certain point, I never went into the penny bar again, because let's say it wasn't looked upon favorably. We were worlds apart in the house. We closed ourselves in the headquarters, and they 50 meters away. Bianco adds, After Franco's death, I remained at Il Fungo until the autumn of 78 when the comrades planted a bomb and blew it up. At that point, the others from the Fungo and I moved to Via Siena, where both Dario Pedretti and Gabriele De Francischi were already there. Our mass arrival was not well received by the party leaders because, in fact, we had taken possession of the Fuon. Cacciola says that we were at the bar and he inside the office and that he didn't know what we were doing? In part, it's true. Sure, he could assume, imagine, but it's not like we were going to tell him our business. The transfer to Fuan was progressive, Alessandro Pucci said. They came from Fungo, they came from Piazza delle Muse, and then those of Monteverde, followed by the group of Prati led by Luigi Aronica. In the end, it had become a catalyst place, because it was known that there were the bravest there, the ones who did the most activism. In short, that the fire group of Nar was there. The word spread and everyone came to Via Siena. From the shooting of Walter Rossi at the end of September 1977, through a series of tit-for-tat attacks culminating in the Acalarencia massacre of January 7, 1978, a new solidity of fascist terrorism was born, taking its grim flight with the random murder of an innocent young man in a public piazza and facing the death of one of its own just a week later. It had been a trial by fire, producing the militants of the new generation, those who declared as fierce an opposition to the state as they did towards the left, even while effectively taking over the university section of the fascist party. Roberto Junta Laspara, his crime was producing a successful left-wing radio station. Franco Bigonzetti and Francesco Chiavata, 
murdered for having attended a far-right political office, wrong place at the wrong time. And Chiavatta's father, drinking poison to end the misery of it all. Roberto Chialaba and his brother, shot in a bloody reprisal for being too visibly far left. The Pucci parents, shot because their son wasn't home. Franco Anselmi, killed while robbing a gun store just a hundred yards from three of his accomplices' homes. All lives destroyed or badly damaged by the stupidity of hatred, by whatever drags us into despair and blinds us to hope. If 1977 had been a period of a new kind of violence in Italy, Acalerencia showed that 1978 would prove even bleaker. And on that note, I'm Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pod. Thank you for listening. 